Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through chapter 2, verse 3. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you invoke as Father, the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him, you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are set on God. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That word is the good news that was announced to you. Rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, A former pastor of mine would end every single scripture reading with, this is the word of the Lord. The congregation would respond, thanks be to God. And then he would say, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Uh, So with that, let me pray for us and we'll jump in. God, thank you for a chance to come and speak, uh, to share a word that I think you have for us today. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing unto you, you who are my rock and redeemer. Be with us uh, and speak to us. In your name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, When I walked in today, someone said, you look like you belong at Ecclesia, like you're, you're meant to be on stage. I guess it was the boots and the black jeans and the blue button-down Oxford. Uh, But I'll confess, I feel kind of underdressed compared to the situations in which I've been preaching in recently. Uh, This is a picture of what I looked like last year, complete with a clergy collar and either a suit jacket or a heavy sweater. And depending on the day, uh, sunglasses, usually not in Ireland because it's like never sunny there. Um, It's a blessing to be with you guys this morning. I feel like you are getting to know me uh, in a different way. Evander is getting to say good morning and good job and go get it. Thank you, buddy. 
so I just wanted to say again, thanks so much to Ian for letting me come and preach this morning. Uh, we find ourselves in the midst of a sermon series looking at First Peter entitled Pilgrims. Uh, First Peter is a beautiful book. You can take that picture down. That's going to be distracting. <laughs> uh, First Peter is a really beautiful book written to a group of people scattered throughout what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, and Peter wrote to them to encourage them uh, that they, their identity is found in Jesus Christ alone, that uh, the society that they live in that's rejecting them for turning away from what was considered the norm and pursuing after Jesus uh, was not actually a crazy thing to do. Peter was writing to them to encourage them, your identity is in Jesus. Jesus really has come and done the things, and because of that, a different life results. And last week, uh, Ian preached on our living hope, uh, this idea that our identity is alive in Jesus Christ, that this hope is alive in Jesus. And so we were taught that we've been brought into the family of God, that when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in what Jesus has done, uh, you take on a new identity, not uh, identified by anything other than you are God's beloved. And out of that, uh, a different orientation arises. A new identity results in new action. And so today, uh, Peter goes on in the text, and we get to find ourselves talking about what happens uh, when we live out our identity as God's beloved. I think something really cool happens when you come to understand your identity, and then you live out of it. And I always end up thinking perhaps because I grew up in the early thousands, of Batman. Anyone else? Batman Begins was released in, I think, 2003, and Christian Bale plays Batman, or really he plays Bruce Wayne, who is a billionaire playboy whose parents died when he was a kid. But Bruce is driven by a haunting sense of injustice, and he's looking for justice for his parents' murder. And his life is lived trying to forget the sense of loss that he felt when his parents died, and he's driven by a sense of revenge. When he gets to potentially take his revenge on the guy who killed his parents, uh, he's unable to. And so Bruce begins to spiral downwards, and he goes on a vision quest. He heads out into the world looking for something, for anything. And what he finds is kind of a shadowy group of people called the League of Shadows, aptly named, I guess. And they are bent on bringing justice to an unjust world. And Bruce dives deep in with them until he finds out that the League of Shadows is actually targeting his hometown, that they're going to wipe it from the face of the earth because it's too far gone from saving. And so Bruce stands for justice. He takes this thirst for justice he felt for his parents' murder, and he turns it on protecting those who aren't able to protect themselves. Justice goes from being a personal thing to a protective thing. His understanding of who he is is radically shifted, and he takes on the nom de guerre, Batman. He becomes the masked vigilante that we know and love. Bruce's life is changed when he understands who he is and what he was created for, and how he lives changes. So he still manifests himself as Bruce Wayne, the billionaire playboy, but this is a, a ruse. It's, it's something that he puts up because who he really is is Batman, someone who stands and fights in the world. Now, I understand that superheroes don't connect with everybody, which is sad. But uh, I have another example. 
Uh, one from literary context. There was a Georgian writer from the state of Georgia named Flannery O'Connor. Has anyone read Flannery? Yes, do we love Flannery? Isn't she great? Alex does, I knew that. This is really for you, I was thinking of you. Uh, Flannery O'Connor was a prolific writer. She wrote about a ton of different things, from short stories to writing about the nature of writing. And in one of her essays, she's writing about the regional writer. And she's trying to encourage us that regional writers, people who write uh, with their work in a specific area, should be listened to. They should be celebrated. And she has this to say about uh, the Southern writer, and it'll come up on screen. She writes, Southern identity is not really connected with mockingbirds and beaten biscuits and white columns any more than it is with hookworms and bare feet and muddy clay roads. Nor is it necessarily shown forth in the antics of our politicians, for the development of power obeys stranger, strange laws of its own. An identity is not to be found on the surface. It's not accessible to the poll taker. It's not something that can become a cliche. It's not made from the mean average or the typical, but from the hidden and often the most extreme. It's not made from what passes, but from those qualities that endure, regardless of what passes, because they are related to truth. It lies very deep. In its entirety, it is known only to God, but of those who look for it, none get so close as the artist. I think Flannery's reflection upon identity is really profound for a number of reasons. But first and foremost, I think she sees identity as the Apostle Peter does. It's not in the cliche generalizations about what a Southerner is, the clay roads or the mockingbirds that we think of, or maybe even the columns as you walk down the street and people sitting on their front porches. Identity is something deeper it's not an outside thing, but it's at the heart of who we are. And the second thing I think that's profound about what she sees identity as is she acknowledges that only God knows the totality of our identity. And we get glimpses of it, and artists who reflect out what it means to be a Southerner in their writing get close to, mean, to, close to what it means to be a Southerner, but only God knows in its entirety. She teaches us something beautiful about what it means to live out our identity as Christians. It's really hard. Living out the story that we're trying to live can never be done perfectly. Only God can see the total uh, encompassing work of who we are. But this is because we live in a fallen world where sin still has impact, where things are bent and broken. But the identity of Christian, the identity of God's beloved is that God so loved the world that he sent his only son into it. That this bent and broken world is no longer ruled by sin, but God reigns over everything. I wonder if the church, in trying to act out our identity, to live it out as a regional writer or as Batman does, ends up falling into one of two traps. We either are trying so hard to live out our identity as God's beloved, as the church, that we actually cloak ourselves in cliche. We live out the Christian equivalent of mockingbirds and muddy clay roads and white columns. We 
make our services in such a way that if you didn't grow up in a church, if you didn't grow up in this specific stream of church, you have no idea what's going on. Uh, we use this really weird language called Christianese. Anyone familiar with this? We say things like sanctified and how's your heart? And people look at us and go, I think it's beating. I'm pretty sure. These are beautiful parts of our tradition, but they're kind of inaccessible. And sometimes uh, we are so afraid to step out of our cliche to re-examine what we think uh, that we end up falling into legalism. Uh, but at the same time within the church, the temptation is also that we might sync up what we do to the culture around us. That we might, in trying to run away from cliche, run towards relevance, and we give up any sort of distinctive claim that we have. Our identity as Christian is not something that sets us apart, but we're actually trying to cover it up. It becomes almost like an embarrassing thing. And that's also not what it means to live out our identity as God's beloved in the world. Syncing up with culture at large doesn't mean, it's not always a bad thing, but it, when we do it in such a way that we lose our sense of who we are as God's beloved, that this is something that sets us apart, we run into issues. Peter has some encouragement for how we are to live out of this identity as God's beloved. His belief is that our new identity in Jesus results in different action moving forward. It literally changes our orientation. Where we were going this way, we met Jesus, and now we're going this way. For some of us, we grew up in the church. We've always been walking this way. But every moment, every day, comes with points where we have to turn. We have to consciously shift. And for others of us, we didn't grow up uh, as part of the church. We didn't grow up uh, as Christians. And there's a moment, maybe it was gradual or distinct, where we turned. And Peter is calling us to this. He's trying to explain to us what does this look like to live out our identity in the world around us. Uh, the church has called it various things over the years, uh, but usually it's termed holy living. And so what we're talking about this morning is a life of holy living. An identity that is rooted in Jesus results in holy living. And Peter has five encouragements for us that I want to dig into this morning. First and foremost, Peter says that a life that is oriented towards God, living out of our identity, a life of holy living, is a life that lives a disciplined hope. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action, discipline yourselves, set all of your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. It, it's funny that Ian said, gird up your loins earlier, uh, because this phrase, therefore, prepare your minds for action, literally means gird up your loins for action. And the picture of this is like people wearing a really big robe, reaching through and making like an adult diaper so they can kind of like move and they can squat and they can do all the things. You know, they could sit, you know, like this. <laughs> it could be translated, uh, therefore, prepare your minds, therefore, gird up your loins. Uh, another way to say it might be, to, like Mulan would have said it, let's get down to business. Let's get down to the business of hope. Or another way to say it is, let's take off our mental warm-ups. 
Let's, we're not preparing anymore. We're getting down to the nitty-gritty of it. Peter's saying a life of holy living is a life that disciplines itself onto hope. But not just vague hope, a really specific hope. It's a hope that looks beyond. The church has been unique over the years for having hope in the darkest of places. Because we believe that this world is not the end, that at a certain point God will come back. We look forward to the day when Jesus comes back. When he completes the work that he began so those 2,000 years ago, the hope of the Christian church is that God will one day come back. And not come back uh, vaguely. God will come back and he will put this world back to right. A life of holy living disciplines itself to live out this hope. God is coming back. And so... Hope reminds us what God has done on the cross, but it also reminds us what God will do in the future. Peter then, he turns a corner almost, uh, and he begins to encourage the people of Asia Minor and Turkey, the different churches that he's writing to, uh, towards holiness. He writes, Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves and all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What's, like, what's with this urge to holiness, right? It's kind of a weird word. It's not really a word that we use in everyday language. It sort of fits within Christianese. We might think of a priest or a pastor, someone who stands up here and talks down to you. Um, let me say that's not really true. Ian and I, as my Irish friends would say, fart in the bath just like you guys do. We put our pants on just like you guys do. Sorry, that was, I should have kept my script there. <laughs> um, a, a life of holiness is not something uh, that we are trying to act towards. God has called us holy. He has set us apart in calling us his beloved. Peter is calling us to a biblical understanding of holiness. And earlier last week in the text that Ian read, he called them to remember the work of the prophets. The prophets preached about the Israelites' distinctiveness, their holiness. The word holy in Hebrew and Greek literally means to be set apart, to be made different. And it's not that what we do, God has made us different in Jesus, calling us beloved, Initially, it was the Jews who he set apart as his own people to be a witness to the world around them, but now he has set the church apart to act as his witnesses in the world, his witnesses to the hope that is in Jesus, his witnesses to the fact that he will come back and put things to right. But God calls us to be holy, not uh, for our sake, but actually for his, because God is holy. God is holy other. God is set apart from humanity. God is not like us. He's something intrinsically different. One of my favorite pastors and theologians and writers is a guy named Karl Barth, and he wrote this. God is the one who stands above us and also above our highest and deepest feelings, strivings, intuitions, above the products, even the most sublime of all the human spirit. It is this God in the highest who is turned as such to man given himself 
to man, made himself knowable to him. God in the highest, in the sense of the Christian confession, means he who from on high has condescended, condescended to us, come down to us, and he has become ours. Let me clarify. Bart wrote in like the 20s, 30s, and 40s when masculine pronouns were referred to everybody, so my apologies for that. Um, but biblical holiness is rooted in this understanding that we are not like God, that God is different than us, that in coming to us, God has brought something else. A life of holy orientation is a life that lives out this identity of God's beloved, that the God who is above all and through all, who has created all things, has come down to us for relationship. A life of holy orientation lives out this belief that we can actually have loving union with this God, who is holy other and yet has come to us in Jesus, comes to us in the Holy Spirit each day. A life of holy living results in a life or a call to a life that serves as an evangelistic testimony to the world around us. God exists. God is different than we conceive of him. Yet God has made himself known. And in making himself known, he's uh, come to us in love. That God's word over the world is, you are my beloved, and I want to be with you. And a call to holy living is also a testimony to ourselves, to believe uh, that God actually loves us. It's to remind ourselves that we have no longer, we no longer live in the world, or we are no longer of the world, we live in it. We have turned, we have turned and changed our direction from walking away from God to walking with God. Now I want to say this, holy living is not the same as holiness. God has made us holy in Jesus. God has set us apart himself. But we live out of that identity, that we have been set apart and called beloved. And we live out that reality in the world around us. We can only act out of identity. We can't earn it. God has given us this identity as his beloved. And so then Peter turns this encouragement, and he says, live out your identity as a hope-filled and a set-apart people. But he does this by reminding the churches to live with a reverent fear of God. Uh, the next scripture bit. He called us uh, to live in reverent fear of God. Now, we've been told to fear God, I'm sure, in the past. And I wonder if uh, it's been communicated accurately what this means. When I think of fear, I think of, like, snakes. I hate snakes. I, I run away from snakes. I don't want to be in the same room as them. I think they're the worst thing in the world. <laughs> they're Satan, Leanne. I also think of horror movies, where it's intended to scare you, to cause you to jump, to turn away from. A reverent fear of God does not cause us to turn away from God, but it also causes us is not meant for us to walk straight up to God and to address God like he is like us. Peter was telling us earlier, God is not like us. He is something totally different. And a life of holy living is lived out of recognizing God as wholly different than us. 
that should cause us to be a little bit afraid, to be apprehensive, to be careful, to be reverent. I can't think of a better depiction of this than in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which Lucy and her sister Susan are getting ready to go meet Aslan, the Lion King of the world. And they're trying to ask, what's he like? We've heard all these things about him. Who is he? And they're talking to the beavers. And this is uh, what C.S. Lewis wrote. Lucy asks, is, is Aslan a man? Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of the beasts, who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Uh, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Aye, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tell is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And I always have a hard time reading C.S. Lewis without Northern Irish accents coming in because he's from Belfast. But a proper reverence for God looks like this. It's not uh, a willy-nilly approach to God because we stand in God's grace. Though God invites us to come to him, everybody who's weary and heavy laden, because he has rest for us. But a reverent fear for God recognizes who God is. But a reverent fear for God also doesn't drive us to run away from God. God wants us to come to him. And we live in this tension I think humans need a mix of structure and freedom to grow. Would you agree with me on that? Maybe? I think of kids. We need discipline growing up to learn what is right and wrong. And yet we also need the freedom to live out uh, our identity, who we are in the world. We have to express ourselves. If too much structure, we feel stuck and trapped. I think God is a holy God who will call us to actually step outside of our limits. Think of Peter. He calls Peter to step out onto the water, to walk on the water with him. God sometimes will call us to step outside of our limits, to step outside of our fear and to approach him, to be in relationship with him, to come near to him. But if we don't consider what our fear of God, uh, if we don't have a reverent fear of God and we try and live as though God's word, God's voice to us, God's speaking to us, God's thoughts don't matter. If we try and live in absolute freedom, we're living in chaos. Just like if we try and to control every little action so we don't upset this God, if we live in a scared fear of this God, we're not living in freedom either. We're living in bondage. We're stuck then trying to understand what this looks like. Peter believes that fear of God lives, results in freedom because it results in believing that our actions actually matter in this world, that one day we're going to have to stand before God and account for that. 
under the guise of grace, where Jesus stands in front of us and says, my blood has covered them. They are no longer responsible for what they do, or they will no longer bear the penalty of death for what they have done, but our actions matter. If we're unwilling to let God's holy love check what we're doing, to call us out of sinful and broken habits, we don't treat God as though he is the orientation of our life. If we're unwilling to pause and say, God, what should we be doing now? What should I be doing? Where do I move forward? How are you working in this midst? We don't have a healthy, reverent fear for God. Fearing God is to recognize God for who he is and to hope in what he will do in the future. It reminds us that we live as God's creatures, that God is our creator, that God has saved us and he is the savior, that we are the servant and he is the master. Uh, Bart has this really great line again. Uh, he writes, the content of the Christian proclamation is the existence of God, whom we must fear above all things, because we may love God above all things. Fear and love are linked, but not in the way that I think we conceive of them as opposites. They live in this beautiful, synchronistic relationship. Peter then moves uh, from fearing God into loving one another. He says, now that you've purified your souls by your obedience to truth, so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. You've been born anew, not of perishable, but imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the good news that was announced to you. Peter's claim is that a life that is lived with a holy intention, with a holy orientation, will result in hope, will result in seeing God as holy other. And as we live out of a reverent fear for God, as though our actions actually matter, we begin to treat others around us differently. We begin to love one another deeply from the heart. The church was called to exhibit God's love in the world, a life of holiness is a life that lives out of this identity that we are beloved. And if we are beloved, that means that everyone else around us is beloved. That God sent his son into the world to die on the cross so they, not only we might have relationship with him, but everyone around us. When we change our direction from going this way to this way, when we come to know Jesus, we also change how we view other people and we start to live out of love. We're encouraged, Peter encourages us to live out of love. Can you think of that one person who you just, oh, it's so hard to love. Like you see them and you think, I'm really gonna have to change how I think about this person. It's hard, but our calling is to love that person because they are God's beloved. And to love that person means to see them as God's beloved and to act out of that reality. That's the truest thing about them. And the incredible thing is that uh, when we start treating people like God's love is the most truest, or is the truest thing about them, uh, then we actually start thinking about ourselves differently too. Uh, it's no longer than if I'm looking out and I see uh, God's beloved, 
I actually have to believe that I'm beloved too. If you want to love other people well, we have to believe that we are loved. The church has actually long held uh, that hope, a life of hope and a belief in God who is other and is uh, different than us, that our actions matter. This has fueled the church's efforts to love the world around them since the beginning. Did you know that hospitals, the education system, most healthcare and hospice work all have their roots in Christians who are bonding together to love people deeply? There was a great American writer, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and his daughter ended up founding a care home in inner city New York uh, to care for terminally ill cancer patients. And this care home that was started in the early 1800s is actually still existing today. Christians live out our identities as God's beloved by treating other people as God's beloved, and that changes how we act towards them. But the church too often is known for what we're against, not really for what we're for. We don't really live out this belief that people are beloved because the church, unfortunately, has spent too, a lot of time sitting in the seat of judgment saying, this is right and this is wrong. Our orientation and our encouragement as the church, first and foremost, is to call people beloved, to share God's belovedness. God will call them to account for their actions. And so we can encourage people, we can introduce people to Jesus, the way of Jesus, which is a distinct way. There are certain things that God has called good and not good. But first and foremost, the church is called to love, to love, to love, to love. It's actionable. It's simple. Who you are in Jesus is to love people, to express that love around us, to show God's genuine and gentle love for the world. This is what it means to live a life of holy orientation, a life of hope, a life that believes that God is different than us. A life of reverent fear is a life that lives out of love. But Peter doesn't end with this. Peter's closing encouragement to the church is actually that change is possible. He writes, Turn away, rid yourself therefore of all malice and all guile, insecurity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I wonder how many of us believe that change sounds like a great thing or that it's possible in people around us, but we don't actually think that we can truly change. I say this because I really struggle to believe that I can grow and change. Um, we moved a ton growing up. It's funny that Ian shared last week that his family moved a ton growing up and that resulted in identity issues. For me, it did as well. And for years, I have really struggled uh, to own who I am. And it's resulted in all sorts of stupid actions and uh, some really brilliant things I can talk to anyone. Um, but I've really struggled to believe uh, that I can actually love who I am, that I can take off my insecurity or my envy for other people. But it's only through God working within us that we can change. But the beautiful reality and proclamation of the Christian church is that the world has been fundamentally changed when Jesus came, which means that change is possible in all of our lives, not through our own action or like something that we have originated, but something that originates in God. The 
family wounds that we bear or the addictions and habits of the past that we've tried to hide, the things that we feel bound to, the Christian proclamation is that there is freedom in the name of Jesus, that God has broken the chain of sin and death, that no longer are we bound to sin, but we've been set free. We can change. And it's not through our work, but it's through the pure spiritual milk, the word of the Lord. As we taste and see what God is doing, we are called into deeper and loving union with God. A life of holy orientation, of holy living, believes that change is possible, not just in people around us, but in us as well. If we want to live out of our identities as God's beloved, we have to believe that God is in the process of growing us and moving us and shifting us and calling us to deeper and deeper relationship with him. And he might cause us or call us to drop some stuff along the way. He might change our orientation. He might change our direction. I was a a neuroscience major in college and I was like laser focused on being an orthopedic surgeon and Two years into my time uh, studying neuroscience, I was working for a hospital in San Francisco General Hospital, and I was doing research, and every single doctor I talked to, like, sounded like they hated their life. And I don't know if it was I was just talking to the ones who were having bad days, but at the same time, I was working for a church. And I got to preach uh, one day, and I remember sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, this is like everything I've wanted to do. And I went to work at the hospital the next morning and thought, oh, I don't want to be here. And it was in this moment that I realized, oh my goodness, God is changing what I thought I was going to be doing. And it was so hard to let go of this dream of being a doctor because with it were a ton of other things. A lot of it had to do with the fact that in ministry, you don't really earn that much money. And I wanted to have a family and to support them. And there was these things that God has called us to, called me to and said, trust me. If you really believe that you're my beloved, would I ever leave you? I have you. I'm walking with you. Change is possible. It was a long journey, but it's resulted in a lot of really beautiful fruit, a lot of really big failures along the way, but a lot of really beautiful fruit. A life that lives out of our identity is open to God calling us to change, to healing us, maybe just to pivoting our direction. And so we believe here at Ecclesia that the gospel changes us, that a life that is lived in Jesus results in a different direction for our life. We want to be a community that embodies that, that embodies a radical hope, an acknowledgement of who God is, distinctly other. We want to live in the reverent fear for God's voice. We want to listen for when God is calling us into a different direction. We want to be people who live out of our identity as beloved and tell other people around us, you are beloved. We want to work with the John Street neighborhood, not because we're coming in saying we're better than you, but because we want to go in and say, you are God's beloved just as much as we are. We see you. God sees you. God has not forgotten you. And we want to see change happen. And not just here in Princeton. We want to see it happen across the Northeast, across the United States, across the world. Because we believe that true freedom is found in life-giving, loving union with God. And so we believe that our identity is beloved. And perhaps that's all you take away from this. 
You are beloved. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what God has done for you. God has declared over each and every one of us here and everybody who's not here, you are my beloved with whom I am well pleased. And then he says, come walk with me. Come be with me. Come spend time with me. Come listen to my voice. Trust me, I have you. We're looking forward to the future. Today's gonna pass away. Tomorrow will come and God will still be in control. The grass withers and the flower fades or falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And the word that God spoke in Jesus is you are my beloved with whom I am well pleased. And so we want to practice this listening, this attending to God, this being with God in loving union. And so as we do every week, uh, I'm going to pray and then we're going to wait. And we're going to see what happens. So uh, Ian will come up for that uh, and kind of lead us through that time. But let me pray for us. God, we thank you uh, that you are the God who has spoken the words of belovedness over us. God, I thank you that you have gathered us here on Sunday uh, to be together in fellowship and in friendship. I thank you that we're about to uh, break bread together and to eat together and to share in communion together. Lord, as we sit and we wait, I trust that you will speak. God, I pray that you would speak. May we be open to what you're going to say. And so we pray, come, Holy Spirit, come. Do the work that only you can do. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.